Welcome to Julius Baer's True Connections podcast, where we hear from entrepreneurs, industry leaders, and financial experts on their views on today's world. In this episode, we speak to Monica Parker, founder of Hatch Analytics, who shares some insights into the challenges we now face in our working practices and how we can adapt to support positive change in the future. Hi, Monica. How are you today? I'm terrific. I'm terrific, Callum. Thanks for having me. How are you? Very well. Monica, thanks for joining us, particularly at this moment in history, I should probably say. Many of our listeners today will probably be listening to this as they work from home or work remotely or certainly work in a very different way than they have in recent weeks and months. I was looking at an article that you did recently called Virtual Water Cooler, and that made me think about exactly what I'm being asked just now in the environment I'm working in. So I'm sitting here speaking to you today in Scotland in my study at home. When I'm speaking to colleagues and friends, they're saying they're really missing the rapport that they have quite naturally when they interact in a normal working environment. So from your perspective, for someone who does what you do every day and advise and help other individuals, what would be your biggest tip for anyone just now working from home or working in a very different way? Yeah, I think it's a, probably a little unexpected tip than what some people might think. There are a lot of time management tips. There's a lot of information out there about how to set up a good home office, setting up schedules, and I think those are all very valuable. But really, I think at the heart of what's happening right now is that we have something of an autonomy crisis in the modern workplace. I think in general, most people have not been given a lot of autonomy to work the way that they know best within their work environments, and now they've been thrust into their homes, given autonomy around whether they can leave or not, around certain decisions in their life, but given so much autonomy in regards to how they're working within their home offices. And so I really think that one of the best tools that we can do is to start to understand how we as individuals best work. And I think one of the greatest ways to do that is something very simple, just to understand your chronotype. Your chronotype is whether you're an owl or a lark, right? A night person or a morning person. And just doing that work to understand your chronotype can really help you start to understand how to organize your day. There was some research done Dan Pink wrote a great book called When, and he shined a light on some research that says that doctors who worked against their chronotype made as many mistakes as being legally drunk. So if a doctor who was a night owl is forced to work in the morning and vice versa, they made as many mistakes as being legally drunk. So this really matters. And what's interesting is that a lot of us haven't done this research. So for example, larks are best at analytic tasks and decision-making first thing in the morning, whereas owls are better at that in the mid to late afternoon. And these are things that we don't really take into account. So I think if we can just start by understanding our chronotype, that we can understand what types of tasks structure in our day as opposed to the specific activities that we do with each hour. And that can really give us a different perspective on scheduling our day. I think that that's probably the single best thing we can start to do. Well, well, that's really interesting, particularly about legally drunk doctors. And I like to think I'm a morning person. But again, just as you mentioned, autonomy is something many of us ask and desire, but when it's actually given to us, it's quite daunting, quite scary. It is. I see it as a muscle. And we really haven't been exercising that muscle so much. And this is one of those ways. It's a little exercise that we can do for autonomy muscle to start to say, really, let me own 
the activities that I engage in during a working day and structure them in a way that is most functional for me. Now, I understand that some of this, when we start getting into homeschooling on top of work, when we start looking at some of the other responsibilities that we may have during the course of the day, it may be a bit different. And so one of the things that I've been telling a lot of people is to recognize that while this is a great test of the feasibility of remote working and the ability to work flexibly, we should not use this as the bellwether of how it will feel in the future because this is still a crisis, right? This is not vacation. This is not normal remote working. I saw someone post, this is not a writer's retreat. This isn't a time when we're all going to be our most productive, our most creative. But it is a great time to start exercising that autonomy muscle and to start to understand how we work well as individuals. It's funny, my daughter was saying to me, it's a bit like when you have a bad winter and you get the first snow. It's very exciting, but after three or four days, it becomes quite monotonous when you're stuck indoors and you can't do anything. So initially, what we've all possibly experienced is something that's quite exciting, quite new, and many of us have gone through business continuity and certainly in my profession, being extremely busy with the markets and helping clients, etc. But one of the things I'm seeing and hearing is how do we keep our teams connected and how do we maintain that social interaction? What's your advice about those who are very used to working in a team and not isolated on their own? How do they stay connected during this period? I think it's really important to recognize a great way to link that idea of we have these autonomous workers, but then connecting them is what we at Hatch call operating rhythms. And so when a team has an operating rhythm that can either be conscious or unconscious, purposeful or accidental, and it's most often tends to be set by the boss. So the boss says, I want us to have this type of meeting at this time this type of report is due at this time. And so those operating rhythms end up being set by the leadership and they end up being quite unconscious as well if you're all co-located in an office. You grab people at the time that you want them. But now, because people are not co-located and my encouragement would be that we start looking at our ways of autonomously setting our own schedules is that these operating rhythms need to be conscious and purposeful. And so how is it that we do that? Some of this is by having those conversations with the team. So talking about what are our individual rhythms? What is everybody's chronotype? What is everybody's caring responsibilities? When can we realistically have these different touch points over the course of the week? And then from those internal touch points, you can start to define what channels you use. And I think this is really important as well that we will not be using the same channels at the same frequency while we're working from home. So before you might have been able to have a lot of face-to-face, you might have been able to email for more things. I think we're going through a phase right now where we're trying to take all the face-to-face conversations we had and convert them to Zoom. Some of that may be practical, some may not. And so I think that we have to start working out what channels work best within the team and then after that create sort of a social contract. And that social contract becomes something that is an accountability to one another that says this is what we do, how we do it, and what happens when we don't. And that set of commitments really starts to become the underpinning for how people work now and also in the future. But of course we have to remember that there's got to be some fun bits. And I think that having mechanisms to connect in fun ways as well as professional ways is very helpful. My personal opinion is it's particularly good if you do the fun stuff in a different channel so it doesn't get lost. 
So maybe fun stuff is in WhatsApp and the worst stuff is in Slack or something like that so that you know when you're going to a particular channel, you know that you're going there to find something that will be uplifting as opposed to work-focused. I'm sure many listening, we've actually learned many new skills. Interesting, we've learned a whole new language, the new normal, even referencing Zoom. A few weeks ago, many of us wouldn't have known what Zoom was. And we've seen many benefits. So we have learned how to do things in a different way and possibly more time effectively than we have in the past. And also advanced many technologies to allow us to operate in a different manner. But on that, Monica, there must be some risks that you see in relation to deployment or working remotely or isolated anyway. What risks do you identify in the current climate that you would want to highlight? I think that there is the operational risk, and probably the biggest operational risk is miscommunication, right? That's got to be number one. And I think that that gets covered in really strong operating rhythms, understanding the channels, understanding the touch points, knowing how people best work. But then when I look at the personal risk, And at the end of the day, most of what we're talking about and your audience will be the knowledge workers. Really, the key of this is keeping people as whole people, their minds, their brains, their bodies, their souls, well-functioning. And so if we look at that, I really think that the biggest risk then becomes mental health, people feeling disconnected. We have an epidemic in the developed world at this moment, and I think this will just start to shine a really painful light on that. For many, work is really their only social outlet, and coming into work is the way that they sort of pierce the bubble of being alone. A lot of people live alone, and that number is growing. And knowing how is it that we can connect with people to check in on them? How do you have a virtual cup of coffee? How do you make someone feel valued when you can't just give them an attaboy physically in the room? I've been talking a lot to our clients about how do you send up a flare? How do you say to somebody, I need just a bit more contact with somebody? I need a bit more attention. And how then can we send a flare as managers to say, how are you doing? And I think that there's a lot of really clever ways that I've seen that happening. But to me, one of the greatest risks is certainly mental health. And we've got to help people focus on self-care, and that will look different for everyone. We have to remind ourselves that while this is the new normal, there's really nothing normal about it. It's a time of fear, of anxiety, of sickness. And so we have to own that. And I think this is a great time to really start to embrace imperfection, which is not an easy thing for professional people to do. People who are highly conscientious, who want to do a great job, this is the time to allow some things to slip through the cracks to the extent that you can. Some things will fall off the plate. I'm a huge fan of the Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi and the art of kintsuki, this idea, if you're not familiar with it, that when pottery gets broken, rather than trying to fix it back together, you actually highlight the fissures with little bits of a precious metal with gold or silver. And to me, I think that's a really beautiful metaphor of what we're going through. Things are going to crack right now. I think rather than trying to spackle over them quickly, I think that we should allow ourselves to highlight them, either highlight them so that we can say, wow, why did that break? And this is sort of fascinating, this time we're going through, but also so that we can come back to them later and say, look at how we were able to keep that together and honor that, honor that pressure that created that fissure and come back to it another time to say that there is this beauty and imperfection and to honor that right now. And that may be a little 
too philosophical for some folks, but I think that maybe we need a little bit of that philosophy, some of that honoring the imperfection and to own that now as opposed to feeling that we need to pretend that everything is okay when really it's not. And it's when you discuss mental health, and we've worked very closely with you at Julius Baer and through Hatch to try and improve our skills and understanding to support colleagues that may be struggling at times. And obviously we've learned those skills when we've been working in those social environments in the office place and seeing each other on a regular basis. And when I read some of the things that you've written previously about unlearning, and I wonder if there's yeah. any views or thinking around about unlearning the skills we've learned to identify maybe colleagues that are struggling in the workplace, unlearning or relearning how to identify them when we're working virtually with each other. Is there different things we should look out for? Is there anything we should be alive to to help colleagues through this period? Absolutely. I think the first key element to understanding unlearning is to recognize that right now we're trying to undo what for some people could be 30, 40 years of a working pattern. That's a lot of mental rut in somebody's mind. And so understanding that in order to unlearn, we have to sort of, and I love that you use the example of the snow, right? that if we're coming down a ski slope, we create pathways on that slope. And then when it snows at night and we come the next day, you have this beautiful piece and you can take any route you want. We really have to sort of create a new layer of snow over the old ruts before we can learn new behavior. One of the key elements that we have to recognize, though, is that people are hardwired for certainty. This is the nature of our brains. Yale University did a study, which I think is fascinating. They offered participants a choice. They said you could have a shock of a low intensity randomly any time during the day. You would have a shock at the time of your choosing, but it would be 10 times as strong. All the participants took the stronger shock. We're willing to take more pain if we can control it. And so we're in a time right now where we can control so little. And because of that, that means that it's going to be even harder for us to unlearn the old ways because those are the things that we know. Those are the things that are certain. And so this is a time with anxiety that it's going to make it harder to create those new paths. What I would say is that we naturally do tend to prune synapses in our sleep. And so if there is some new activity you're really trying to get to grips with by harnessing some of the tricks of neuroplasticity, if you try to do that activity just before you go to bed and right when you wake up, you will tend to learn that activity a bit more quickly. The other thing is to recognize is that we're hardwired also from an evolutionary perspective to look for the dangers in the world. So negative stuff tends to stick like a burr in our brains. I imagine if anybody has the BBC app on their phones right now, as soon as they hear the little jingle, you go, oh, God, what is it? I don't even want to look. So I think we're recognizing that sometimes the news cycle will actually hinder our neuroplasticity because it roots the negative in our brains. And if we want to look for new ways and new opportunities, we need to try to create some level of sort of positivity in order to find that. And so I think that maybe unplugging a bit from the news cycle and recognizing that your brain is most plastic just before you go to bed and when you wake up will help with learning some of these new habits. Loads of great guidance there. Fantastic. Now, one of the things that I think must help many people is having a good physical environment when they're working remotely or at home. 
Now, I'm very lucky. I'm sitting in my office at home in Scotland, and it's very comfortable, but not as comfortable as where you are, Monica, right now in the south of France, looking out over the Mediterranean, I believe. So I'm very, very jealous. And one of the things we've been doing at Julius Baer to keep some of the fun element is we've been sharing some photographs of our working environment. And we've had some fantastic photographs. Many of them include pets, so lots of four-legged friends in there and new work colleagues. And we even had some person surround their workstation with toilet rolls, obviously feeling very precious about hanging on to the essentials in life. I was just curious from your perspective, many will be working at home with children. Many will be working at home with partners who are also trying to work from home. Is there any guidance on how individuals should set themselves up physically at home, how they should structure that environment? Any guidance there, Monica? Absolutely. There's the basics, right? A good working chair, if you have one, a table, natural light will be really, really helpful if possible. So I think getting the basics right when you can is quite important. If you're living in shared accommodation or with your partner, and I know that Hatch has a lot of grads that are living in shared accommodation, finding different settings that serve different purposes and then creating a bit of a schedule so that everybody can get them. So maybe there's a great spot in the house that gets great light and is really good for some deep thought, a little reading nook, has a nice view. Then allow both of the people that share that home to everybody get a go. If you're in a family and there's a particular room where people are able to be quiet, let everybody have their alone time there, that they can do whatever it is that they want. So everybody gets a go at a particular space. When looking at working with children, I think it's really key if you have not yet set a schedule to set a schedule and set expectations as soon as possible. So working to the kids' schedule, having everybody know what the expectations are, when can mom or dad be interrupted, when can parents, when do they really need that heads down time, and making it understandable about what is an emergency and what is not, and then aligning the children's breaks with the parents' breaks so that you're able to have that shared time together so that everybody can be productive when they need to and then have a little bit of fun. And maybe, again, I'm a big believer in humor, helping people manage difficult times, so having a bit of fun, making Wednesday lunches a bit longer so that you can play a little bit of Mario Kart or maybe having a bit of time on Fridays where everybody gets to stay in their jammies for longer. But having that schedule and having those expectations set up early will really, really help. But again... This is going back to what I said before, flexibility, recognizing that this is not about perfection, things will go wrong, and allowing that, and just being really compassionate and listening to each other a little bit more than perhaps we did before. And do you feel there must be an element of people feeling some sense of guilt? And what I mean by that is when you're normally in your working environment, you may be in the office from 8 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the evening. But if you were to be actually monitored on when you're actually productively working, it will not be for that full period. And because you're at home, I think people are finding it hard at times to separate, I'm at home, I'm at work. So they're possibly sitting in front of their screen now for that whole length of period. Whereas when they're in the working environment, they maybe talk to colleagues about their favorite sport or hobby, nip out to Starbucks for a coffee and have that natural break. Do you feel people are carrying an element of guilt and therefore... In the environment we're in, it's certainly undesired at this moment in time. It's unexpected. And one of the questions I keep hearing, and I'm sure everyone listening has thought this question or has been asked it, is 
when do we think this will end? So is there something on how we manage that feeling of guilt and while you're in the home environment, separate it, you know, you're given some great ideas there, but is there anything around about that mental health piece on how we get over that feeling of guilt if I'm not working the full eight to six o'clock every day? Absolutely, and I think you make a really sound point, and I'm already hearing this from people saying, I have such Zoom overload, and I'm literally in Zoom calls from the moment I wake up until I go to make tea for my family. And I think that we are maybe trying to over-replace the face-to-face using technology. It's not the same. It is a great tool, but it's still not the same. And we're just not capable of having that level of intensity of being always on for that period of time. And I don't doubt that people are feeling guilty. I am hearing that. And I think that some of that guilt gets even further compounded when they think, I'm working, I have a paycheck coming in, and I know that there are other people in the world who are not as lucky. And so I think that there is some other internalized guilt of saying, I'm scared, I don't feel happy, and yet I'm in such a better position than so many other people, and that makes us feel guilty too. I would say that just from my research, one of the greatest ways to get over guilt is through gratitude, to be grateful for the things that we have. And some of that guilt that is self-imposed, the activities that we're doing as managers, I think that we need to back off a little bit and start helping people schedule in breaks in their day. I think that we should probably look at people's typical schedules and just take 30% of them off and say to our staff, okay, whatever it was you were doing when you were in the office, let's try to do 70% of that. Also internally in your own self looking at what does self-care mean to me. My husband, his self-care is DIY. He loves to fix little bits that are broken in the house. That's how he soothes himself. And so he's been doing a lot of it. It's great because our house is going to be in tip-top shape. But he knows that about himself. He knows that sometimes he just needs to break and go work on a project. You know, for me, it's definitely sitting in the sun. And you mentioned I'm very blessed to be able to have the home that we do here. But I think some of that is this is an opportunity for us to start to understand what is our self-care. Is that walking? Is that putting on a face mask? Is that doing some meditation? Is that calling a friend? Is that spackling the wall? What is that thing that you can do? And that doesn't have to just be done on the weekends now. That can be done in the middle of the day, and that is perfectly acceptable in order to be able to get through your day. And I think that that needs to be reinforced from managers to their staff, that is okay that you take that time. And I suppose it's very important to lead by example to ensure you set the right culture and tone within the business if you're a line manager or leader of a business as well. Absolutely. And I like that you talked about the pictures that people were taking. And I think that that would be another great way is to people to have managers say, I spent two hours today doing Lego with my kids and show a picture to just show that I needed that time and so I took it so that team members feel they can take that time as well. And that leads me to a question which I'm sure is obvious, but at the same time very important to ask. So from your observations, do you believe that the way we work will change in the future? Because I'm getting asked, well, when will we return to normality? Do you feel normality as we once knew it will ever exist again, or do you believe we will change the way we work and operate in the future? I really hope we don't go back to the way that we worked because... Most people were pretty miserable in their jobs. If you look at Gallup's survey of workplace satisfaction, in the UK, it's amid 80% of people who say that they're unhappy in their job. 
the survey they do, someone has to tick a box that says, I'm sleepwalking through my day. Out of that, 80%, another 20 are active saboteurs to their coworkers' success. And so I think that there is a bit of a rot at the heart of a lot of corporate work environments. So I hope that we don't go back to what the normal was. I believe that this is going to fundamentally challenge people's expectations of what's capable and what's not. I believe that this will allow us to really understand what must be done with physically co-located teams as opposed to what can be done in a more virtual way. And I think that this is an opportunity for us to return to a new normal of more autonomous work cultures, more compassionate work communities, greater connectedness, and a different shared purpose for our businesses as opposed to just slipping back into the old rut of presenteeism that we used to be in. At least that's my hope, Callum. And I have the same hope as well. I feel this is an opportunity for us to reflect and pause and think about our self-being and also the society and community we work within. And I'm very optimistic that this will give us positivity, although it's difficult in these times when headlines are so negative. Monica, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm very jealous that you have sunshine coming through your window, and I have quite a windy day in Scotland here just now. But it's been great speaking to you. Thank you very much for your time, and I look forward to speaking to you again soon. It was my pleasure, Callum. Thank you so much. Stay safe. Thank you. That's all for this edition of Julius Bear's True Connections podcast. Thank you for listening, and please do keep in touch with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and at juliusbear.com. Bear.com.